0: Well, happy Christmas, and welcome to the final message in our three-part series on the mediatorial offices of Christ. Mediatorial, that means a go-between, a bridge between God and man. Uh, offices, the role or the function, and then Christ, which means Messiah or anointed one. Uh, They are three in number, the mediatorial offices of Christ. They are prophet, priest, and king. Uh, We need a prophet because we are ignorant and lack information. We need a priest because we are sinful, and we need someone to bring us to God, and we need a king because we are under the tyranny of sin and Satan, and we need someone to rule over us and to protect us. Let's consider this question today, which comes from a pseudo-Christian story, and that is from Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, where the Magi ask this question, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? That is our question today. Uh, As we have been studying the mediatorial offices of Christ, remember the fancy Latin theological term for this is the munis triplex, the offices which are three. Uh, Two weeks ago, we looked at the first of those offices, and that is Christ our prophet. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, God, through Moses, promised that he would send The prophet, that prophet, the great prophet, and Jesus was the fulfillment of that prophecy for no one ever spoke the way that he spoke. No one ever spoke the way that he spoke. John chapter 7 verse 46. And then last week we looked at the office of Christ our priest, our great high priest. Remember the prophecy from Psalm 110 where Scripture promises through David that God's people will have a forever messianic priest in the order of Melchizedek. And Jesus fulfills that in that he prays for his people, he blesses his people, he ever lives to make intercession for his people, and he was both the priest and the offering. He offered himself as a sacrifice to God to pay for the sins of his people on the cross. That is Christ our priest. So we have Christ the prophet, Christ the priest, and then finally today, Christ our king. A gentleman by the name of Clayton Carby, who writes for a website called Reasonable theology uh, pointed something out concerning kingship. I'm going to paraphrase his words, but I found him to be very insightful when he said that as Americans, we are not keen on the idea of having a king. Uh, We had one once, and we fought a revolutionary war in order to get rid of him. And even today, Our most recent image of kingship is that Queen Elizabeth II has died, and her son Charles has become the king, and regardless of what you think of him, he is a figurehead. He is an historic, he holds an historic office which was prominent in the past but no longer wields any real power. And then here's a direct quote, an exact quote from him. Uh, He says, but when we speak of Jesus Christ, our king, we are not alluding to either a tyrant or a figurehead. We instead are speaking of a perfect, righteous, and loving king, one who is absolutely sovereign in his authority and eternal in his reign, end quote, and very well said. Christ, our king. So, With that in mind, let us pray. Kind, loving Heavenly Father, we are so happy that you have assigned a monarch to rule over us, and he is benevolent and he is good. And today, on this Christmas Day, we want to learn more about who he is, and we want to know him better. Lord, we want to worship him Oh, We want to obey him. We want to tell people of his fame and of his glory. And so, Lord, as we listen to this message today, may the distractions of this day not um, cause us to drift in our thinking, but may we concentrate, and Lord, may we in our spirits and in our lives glorify Jesus as king, for it is in his name that we pray, amen. Well, just as God prophesied or promised that there would be a messianic prophet and a messianic priest, so too, a forever king was promised for God's people. And that was in the scripture text, which was read earlier from 2nd Samuel chapter 7 verses 12 and 13, where Nathan said to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, when you die, I, speaking of God, will raise up Your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The throne of his kingdom forever. The throne of his kingdom forever. forever. Uh, This forever king was not Solomon, nor any of the other kings of Judah, and for a thousand years, the Jews were looking for the great messianic forever king. Every royal monarch, however, who took the throne, died, and they stayed dead, and when they stayed dead, they were therefore disqualified from being the forever king. The messianic king was promised, but it was going to be difficult for people to recognize him, and here is why: The Jews were in subjection to the Romans. They were looking for a king who would bring the Jewish people military and political and economic deliverance. Anytime that you are looking for something, anything at all, and your preconceived notion of whatever it is you're looking for is wrong, you're never going to be able to find it because you, even if you see it, are not going to be able to recognize it because you were envisioning something else. They were envisioning this military, political, economic deliverance king. You see, they were an oppressed people who longed for a Messiah who would literally sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem, and he would restore peace and power and protection and prominence and prosperity for national ethnic Israel. In John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Uh, it is at this point that the people recognize he might be that great messianic prophet. That's in chapter 6, verse 14. And in the very next verse, we know that the people also perceived him to be the great messianic king. You see, they misinterpreted the act of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And here's what Jesus did in Response to their misinterpretation of his miraculous deed. John chapter 6, verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him a king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus knew what they were thinking, and so he got out of there because he knew that they would come and try to take him by force to be their messianic king. The next day, Jesus crosses over the Sea of Galilee. He gets halfway there by walking on the water. The other half he rides in the boat with his 12 disciples. He gets to the other side and he preaches a sermon which we commonly call the Bread of Life Discourse. In the Bread of Life Discourse, Jesus explains and clarifies the meaning of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, and that is that he was the bread of life. In John six fifty one, he said, "'I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh.'" is my flesh, is my flesh. The gospel is of first importance. That is what Jesus was doing in feeding the 5,000 and then in explaining the feeding of the 5,000. He is constantly pointing to his death, but that was something which couldn't happen in the minds of the oppressed Jewish people at that time. They didn't listen, nor did they understand And the confusion about the nature of his kingship is all over the New Testament. It is technically the reason why he was crucified. Follow the Passion narrative. He is in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying and sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. He is arrested, and then he is taken and given two trials by the sort of co-high priest, Annas and Caiaphas, and then he is taken to the entire Sanhedrin, that is the Jewish ruling council. He is given another trial there, and the charge that they bring against him is blasphemy because he claims to be the son of God, and therefore he claims to be God. Now, that is blasphemy unless, of course, you are the son of God and you are God, but they do not think that he is the son of God nor God, but that is the charge that they have against him. And at this point, the Jewish religious leaders, the Sanhedrin themselves, would have gladly taken Jesus outside of Jerusalem and they would have stoned him, but they couldn't do that. The reason that they couldn't do that was twofold. First of all, because God, in his word, in Psalm 22, prophesied that Jesus would die, or the Messiah would die through crucifixion, having his hands and feet pierced. And the other reason why they couldn't do that is because Jesus had a popular following among the common people. And he became so popular among so many, remember the triumphal entry, he became so popular among so many, that they could not get away with stoning him because he claimed to be God because the people would revolt. And so what they needed to do was to get someone else to do their dirty work. They needed to manipulate someone to put him to death. And they did this by manipulating Pontius Pilate and Rome to do their dirty work for them. And so when they bring Jesus to Pilate the next morning, they say nothing about blasphemy. They say nothing about their law. Notice, and if you will please turn to Luke chapter 23, notice the charge or the accusation that comes against Jesus. It is a misunderstanding of his kingship. Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 3. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him, Jesus, before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Pilate, we've got a problem here, and the problem is this man is claiming to be a king. Verse number three, and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Absolutely, I am a king, and I am the king of the Jews. Now, Pilate, at this point, is doing everything he can to wiggle out of this. But ultimately, the reason why he crucifies Jesus is because of the accusation of his opponents and the claim of Jesus himself that he is royalty, Their accusation of him being a king. And Pilate asked them, what do you want me to do with your king? What is their response? John 19, 15. We don't have any king except for Caesar. You want to talk about blasphemy? A Jew saying they have no king but Caesar? Huh? that's the pot calling the kettle black. But that is their accusation against Jesus, that he claims to be a king. And you'll remember that when Jesus is taken into the praetorium, every act of mockery and torture which is levied against him is in the form of a kingship motif they put on his head, a crown of thorns. They put upon him a purple royal robe. They put in his hand a mock scepter. They sit him down upon a mock throne and they bow before him in mockery and say, Hail, King of the Jews, before they smite him and spit upon him. All of their, in the entire party of mocking Christ had a theme and the theme, every party should have a theme, the theme of this party is you are not a real king and we will mock you For it. We will torture you for it. Now, legal proof that the bottom line of his crucifixion was a claim for royalty is seen literally and legally in the inscription that was placed above his head on the cross. You see, when they would execute someone, they would write a placard uh, so that the public could read why the person was being executed. It was called the inscription. And, And that inscription was there, not just for legal purposes, but it was a deterrent to society. So if you were considering doing a crime, uh, this would give you hesitation. Let's say you walk up to a crucifixion and you see an inscription and it says, this is Simon from Hebron, the thief. Well, if I see a guy who is being tortured on a cross for stealing, I am going to be less likely to steal. Well, here's what Pilate writes legally in the inscription, which is placed above the head of Jesus in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Jesus of Nazareth, that is who he is and where he is from. That is his identification. Jesus of Nazareth, and now his crime, the king of the Jews. His crime is that he claims to be king, and they have no king but Caesar. And so Jesus never denies his kingship. But he explains to Pilate that his rule and his reign is far different than anything that Pilate is capable of envisioning or anything that Pilate has seen before. Jesus tries to explain this to Pilate. He says, and this is a very logical argument in John eighteen thirty six. my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting so that I might be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. In other words, Pilate, look at what's happening right near, right now. If, if I were your run-of-the-mill king, then what my subjects would be doing is they would be rioting in the streets to keep me alive." But my kingdom is not like any kingdom you have ever seen. My kingdom is not from this world. What I am establishing is a kingdom which is not earthly and political and military in nature. Which begs the question, if the kingdom of Jesus is not earthly and political and military in nature, what is it? In what sense is Jesus the king? If that is not the sense in which he is the king, in what sense is he the king? Well, in broad strokes, there are two answers which are scripturally accurate as to what it means that Jesus is the king. The first one is this He is king simply by nature, of, by, by nature of the fact, virtue of the fact, that he is God. Uh, Jesus is God, and therefore, he is king. In, in Psalm 103, verse 19, It says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. If you believe Jesus is Lord, then you believe that Jesus is enthroned in the heavens and that his kingdom has no limitations and that he rules over all. It is something that the theologians call the regnum uh, potentae and I'm certain that I said that wrong because we didn't have any Latin classes in Dubois, Pennsylvania, but it's the regime of the potentate. It is The regime is the kingdom or the dominion. Potentate is the ruler, and so what theologians call this, this overarching rule of Jesus as king is the reign of Jesus as our sovereign ruler, And he exercises this by virtue of the fact that he is a member of the Trinity. He is creator God. He has been from eternity past. He will be into eternity future forever and always king. There is never a moment in which he became king. He has always been king. Revelation 19 verses 15 and 16 spell this out well. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is king simply by virtue of the fact that he is God. However, for our purposes today in studying the mediatorial offices of Christ, he is also the regnum gratiae, or and again, still no Latin classes in Dubois, Pennsylvania. But what it literally means is the regime of grace or the king of grace. I never realized that the song before the throne of God was so theologically astute. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. The king of glory and of grace. What does it mean that Christ is the king of grace? It means that he rules over a spiritual kingdom over his people or the church. It is a spiritual, invisible kingdom. Listen to how the theologian Louis Burkhoff puts it. It is a mediatorial role as it is established in the hearts and lives of believers. Uh, remember what Jesus said. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is within you or it is among you. It is invisible. It, 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 it's not like any other kingdom you've ever seen. Berkhoff goes on to say, it is spiritual because it is, it is administered or brought about not by force or external means, but by the word and the spirit which is the spirit of truth and wisdom and justice and holiness of grace and mercy. And then he, he goes on to, to speak about how this kingdom is manifest. Burkhoff says, this kingdom reveals itself in the gathering of the church and its government protection and perfection. Not that we are perfect, but that we are in the process of being perfected through sanctification, end quote. And did you get that? If you didn't, don't worry, because as it is with this sermon, so will it be with all other sermons. I'm going to repeat myself. You don't get a break just because it's Christmas. But here is the repetitive part of the sermon, and that is that there is a real, real, real sense in which Jesus is your king, whether you submit to him or not. I don't know who you voted for in the last election. I don't know who you voted for in the election before that but oftentimes you will hear people saying of a president that they don't like, he's not my president. Well, yes, he is. Uh, If you are a US president, he is your president. Uh, You may not have voted for this person, but if you are a citizen of the United States, he is your president. If you are a created being, Jesus is your sovereign king. You may not love him, you may blatantly disobey him. You might not even believe that he exists. You might hate him and his law, but he is still your king, the the, the uh, regim potente. On the other hand, in a mediatorial sense, he is only your king if you are one of his redeemed ones, one of his church, one of his elect. You see, in human government... Kings and presidents and mayors, they rule by muscle and with the sword. In the kingdom of Christ, this is the beauty of the mediatorial kingdom, the spiritual kingdom of Christ. In the kingdom of Christ, he rules by his word and by his spirit from the inside out in the hearts of his own. And through his church, he rules and he reigns. So in a very real sense, it can be said that we do not need to pray thy kingdom come, uh, because in a very real sense, we should be praying, thy kingdom came. Uh, when Jesus took the throne and he reigned as, and we were saved, his kingdom came into our hearts. He is reigning now in the hearts of his people. Uh, let me give you a very quick Bible study right now. First of all, from Psalm chapter two, verse six, it speaks of the nature of the mediatorial king, And here's what it says As for me, this is God the Father speaking, I have set my king on Mount Zion, my holy hill. We read in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. But to the Son, he says. No, wait, hold on right there. You say, wait a minute. You're about to quote Psalm 102. Why don't you just read from Psalm 102? The reason I'm not reading from Psalm 102, although it matches with Hebrews chapter 1, is because Hebrews chapter 1 adds this little phrase, but to the Son, so that we will know that it is Jesus that he is talking about. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever, and the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Well, what is the nature of this kingdom? You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, and therefore God, your God, has anointed you. Messiah, Christ, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Jesus is happy By virtue of his righteousness, which is bestowed upon him by God the Father, because he is our mediatorial king. Remember Gabriel speaking to Mary, Luke chapter 1, 32 and 33. What's this baby gonna be like? Well, he will be great and be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne. T-H-R-O-N-E, throne, throne, throne. He will be given the throne of his father David. This will be the forever king that we read about in 2 Samuel 7. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. That is you and me. We are the Israel of God. We are the house of Jacob. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. Which begs three questions. Number one, how and when did he get to be our mediatorial king? When and how did all of this come about? Well, the answer is by his resurrection, ascension, and session, or being seated at the Father's right hand. In other words, at his enthronement. His resurrection implies that he died. You can't be raised unless you're dead. So he's raised from the dead. Why did he die? He died for our sins. We're sinners. We're separated from God. There's a price to be paid for our sins. Now, we can either pay for our own sins in eternity in hell, or someone can pay that debt for us. Well, Jesus, our Messiah, came from heaven to earth, and he was born of the Virgin Mary and he lived a perfect life in our place and he fulfilled the law of God and he died in our place on the cross. The gospel is of first importance and in so doing, he as our substitute gives us his perfect righteousness and he takes away all of our sins. He satisfies the righteous requirements of the law and he appeases the wrath of God which was against us because of our sins. And he did it fully and completely. When he had finished the work, he said, it is finished. So they take him and they put him in a grave. The reason they put him in a grave is because he is dead. And if he stayed in that grave, he could not be our forever king, any more than Solomon could be our forever king. But... According to 2 Samuel chapter 7, he is a king that will rule forever. And if you're going to rule forever, you need to be alive forever. And guess what? He doesn't stay in the grave. He arose. Now, in order to be crowned and enthroned as the mediatorial king in heaven, he has to go to heaven. And so what does he do? He ascends. Acts chapter 1 verse 9. He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight, and... His enthronement is all over the New Testament. Uh, Perhaps it is best summed up in Acts chapter 2, verses 30 through 36. Would you please turn to that passage? Acts chapter 2, verses 30 through 36. Remember, we are answering the question, when and how does Jesus become our mediatorial king? And the answer is, at his session to the throne, him being seated on the throne Acts chapter 2, verses 30 through 36. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, that's speaking of David, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades or the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, that's the resurrection, and of that we are all witnesses, we saw him being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, ascended and then seated. And by the way, you do know that there is not a literal throne, a literal chair, and Jesus doesn't have a literal crown. You know that this is all figurative language, but it is his enthronement, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Hang on to that because that is so important. He has poured out, Out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord, this is Psalm 110, verse one, the Lord, God the Father, said to my Lord, to God the Son, Jesus the Son, sit at my right hand, be enthroned at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know For certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, Jesus, whom you crucified. The part about the Holy Spirit being sent. Not only does this speak of his enthronement and the reason for it, but also the proof of his enthronement. The proof that he was enthroned is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And that is what you see this day, all of these people speaking in all of these languages and and them coming out boldly for Jesus Christ. So that answers the question of how and when he became our mediatorial king, that is, at his enthronement. But now here is question number two, and it's a little bit more complex and a little bit harder to grasp, and that is, what is his current role or status as our enthroned king? And the short answer is, he is the head of the church. Listen as I read, please, from Ephesians chapter 1, verses twenty through 23. What is he doing now? Well, he is the head of the church. Uh, That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Uh, What is the extent of his rule? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head or king over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Did you catch that? Gave him as head over all things to the church. Uh, The Westminster Shorter Catechism of Faith puts it this way. Christ executes the office of king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all our enemies, end quote. You see, we who have been born again, and let's just stop right there, there's kingdom language associated with being born again, Nicodemus, you must be born again. How can a man be born again when he's old? And Jesus said to him, don't be surprised that I say to you, you must be born again. For unless one is born again, he cannot see or enter the kingdom of heaven. So in order to get into the kingdom, you've got to be born again. Are you born again? Wouldn't it be wonderful if you became born again on Christmas? Uh, When you are born again, you are part of the kingdom. And being a part of that kingdom, we have a king. And I want you to know that our king is not a tyrant, he is not a despot, he is not an oppressor, he is a generous king, and he is a benevolent king, and he is a kind and a loving and merciful and understanding king. I'm a little slow to the game in everything, and I mean everything. You spend any time with me, you will see that I catch on, but I catch on slowly, for years, people were telling me, uh, you should be listening to Pink Floyd, The Wall. And I don't know, for 43 years, I just resisted. And then I went to England last month, and one of these British kids at the university said, you know, you really should be listening to The Wall. So I started listening to The Wall. And, 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 and look, look, I might be saying something blasphemous right now, because I, I don't understand the words at all. So I don't even know what it's about. All I know is, I got up this morning, and I turned on... That horrible woman who plays music for me, whose name shall remain silent, lest she start to say something right now, but I, I, I probably, I would be less than 10% of pastors in America that it would have been listening to the wall this morning. I can't stop listening to it. I'm 43 years late to the game, but I'm listening to it. Here's another thing that I'm late to the game with. The Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis Never read them. Never had any interest. Never had any interest because it was, it was fiction and it was fantasy and it was I don't know science fiction or whatever, which, which is just odd because my two favorite movies are Field of Dreams and It's a Wonderful Life, which, which are nothing but fiction and fantasy. And and one thing you will learn about me if you know me is that I am consistently inconsistent. But here I am. I I, I had a resistance to, to, the Chronicles of Narnia until. My grandson falls in love with it, and he says, "Papa, Papa, will you read this with me?" And I start to read it, and I say, "People knew what they were talking about. This is wonderful." Well, Aslan, the king, who's the lion who, who represents Jesus—spoiler alert there for you—he uh, says in. To to young Diggory, and, and this is so beautiful; it, it makes me want to cry. Speaking of the the wicked witch Jadis, he says, "Evil will come of that evil. She, she will be taken care of. Uh, I'm your king. I'm I'm, I'm going to take care of her. But it is still a long way off." And then Aslan says this, and I will see to it that the worst falls upon myself. In other words, I am your king. I'm going to take care of you. Everything is going to be okay. And I am going to take it upon myself. I have chill bumps right now. I think about Jesus, our king, who comes to us. Think about other kings. What do they do? They use their people as pawns in order to make themselves comfortable. What does Jesus do as our king? He takes the worst part on himself. He drinks it to the dregs so that we can be in his kingdom. Jesus, our king, the head of the church, did it for the good of his subjects. He is our king. He does rule our lives. But he does it for our good, and he does it for our joy. Such a kind king. When we think about heaven and the joys of heaven, I don't know that I comprehend it. I certainly don't fully understand it. But in part, the reason why we will experience the joys of heaven is because there will be no more sin. Jesus, the king of the church, is doing what he is doing for our joy. He is ruling graciously over us. He is the king of grace. Which brings me to the last point. Finally, the question is asked how do we respond to our king? And there are three ways. First of all, we are to honor him. We are to honor him. In a pseudo Christian story, the magi, the wise men, show up looking for a king. And they ask that question, which I read at the beginning of the sermon, which is, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They are in Jerusalem. Uh, The religious leaders there know that he is to be born in Bethlehem based upon the prophecy of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But they're asking the question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They get to the house in Bethlehem, And notice what they do. And for today, I want you to forget about the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. It really happened. It really is significant. That's not what I want you to see. Here's what I want you to see. Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped. And they fell down and worshipped. And they fell down and worshipped. We've been traveling a long way. We are here. He is the king. What is the response to the king? You fall down and you worship. They honored the king. Oh, come let us adore him. Is he your king? Adore him. When we sing together, lift your voices Lift your voices. Is he your king? Worship him. Raise your hands. Is he your king? Bow down before him. Is he your king? Extravagantly express your love for him. If he is your king, acknowledge him as such. A semi-interesting thing happened last night at my son's church in Georgia. Uh, My son Parker is the pastor of the Cleveland Road Baptist Church in Athens, Georgia, and last night uh, the governor of the state of Georgia, Governor Kemp, wanted to go to a small service, and so he picked Cleveland Road Baptist Church to come to last night. One of the members of Parker's church had to be uh, Told ahead of time. Please, when you see him, do not just just act normal. He's just coming here to worship. And so, after the service was over, um, he came up to Parker and he said, uh, "Pastor, listen, I'll pay you back for this, but um, I just uh, took the liberty of going out to the uh, the gift shelf um, in the hallway." And I gave every member of the Kemp family and both of the security guards uh, a Cleveland Road Baptist Church mug. And I thought <laughs> I thought, okay that's that's beautiful uh, and And we prayed that this governor will will reign with, with with justice and mercy, but 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 when a governor uh, who is a man, human being just like you or me, comes, the natural reaction is to honor him, even if it is with a mug from the church. How much more, when we recognize that Jesus is our king, should we be all out in our adoration of him with extravagant praise? Amen? Amen. Oh, it's Christmas. You can do better than that. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. Number two, very simply, how do we respond to Jesus as king? Well, we obey him. I will... Draw your attention to one verse, and that is Luke 6:46. Jesus asks a very profound question, and the question is this: Why do you call me Lord Lord and not do and do not do what I tell you? Anytime you see a double name in Scripture, Lord, Lord, it means that it is spoken with passion and enthusiasm. And Jesus says, I've got a question for you. Why are you calling me Lord, Lord, but yet you are not doing what I ask you to do? Uh, Am I your king? Am I a tyrant? No. Am I a figurehead? No. Am I your Lord? Yes, Lord, Lord. Oh, come let us adore him. Well, if I'm your king, why don't you do what I tell you to do? I mean, what kind of a king has authority? He says things to his subjects and they don't obey. Uh, That's not a very powerful king. Is he in reality your king? You're not going to get into the kingdom of heaven by obeying what the king tells you to do. You get into the kingdom of heaven through his grace, by his substitution, by faith and faith alone, in Christ and Christ alone. But if you indeed are in the kingdom, does it not make sense that when you read something in the scripture which you are told to do, that you would do it? You either need to do it or stop calling him your king. Number three, how are we to respond to this king? Finally, we are to advance his kingdom. Jesus is about to ascend and be enthroned, and he is giving final instructions to his disciples, and he mentions his royal royal authority. In Matthew 28, verse 18, he says, all authority, all dominion, all kingship, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He could stop right there and we could say, Hallelujah, Jesus, you are our king. But he doesn't stop talking. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, I am your king. And he goes on to speak and he says these two words. In verse 19 of Matthew 28, go therefore. Go, therefore, There are ramifications for me being the king, and that is to you, you are to go. In light of the fact that I am king, your response is to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. I am the king, there are ramifications for that, and that is you are to go and tell people about me." In other words, go tell it on the mountains, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountains that Jesus Christ is born and that he is crucified and that he is risen and that he is ascended and that he is seated and that he is reigning as king. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus is your king. Go tell it over the hills and everywhere that other people can have them as have him as their king as well and if they will repent and believe they can be in the kingdom go tell people about Jesus advance his kingdom merry christmas father in heaven thank you that we have a message which is full of meaning thank you that we have a king who is ruling in kindness. Thank you, Lord, that we have a story to tell to the nations. Lord, may we use opportunities to speak of you. Lord, may we live lives which reflect the fact that you are our king. Lord, even now as we prepare to go home, may we use the voices that you have given us to bring honor and adoration to you as we sing in closing. This we ask in the name of our King, Jesus Christ. Amen.